An Old Testament reading from the book of Psalms. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. For I hear the whispering of many tear all around as they scheme against me, together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Do not let me be put to shame, O Lord, for I call on you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go dumbfounded to Sheol. Let the lying lips be stilled that speak insolently against the righteous with pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness that you have laid up for those who fear you and accomplish for those who take refuge in you in the sight of everyone. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from human plots. You hold them safe under your shelter from contentious tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was beset as a city under siege. I have said in my alarm, I am driven from your sight, but you heard my supplications when I cried out to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts haughtily. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter 14. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, o Lord. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard of it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. This is the gospel of the Lord. pray together. Father in heaven, we, uh, we're here again reading familiar stories as we move through this season of Lent. Um, and we ask that as we think on this story out of Jesus's life, the last days of his life, that you would give us understanding. You'd give us perhaps some fresh, fresh ways of understanding. So would you, by your spirit, open our ears, open our eyes, that we may see and behold the beauty of our Savior who loves us so much. In his name we pray. Uh, amen. So we're in the second, second week of Lent, right? And, and this is a season when the church is historically, and when we, some of us, are in this season thinking about uh, the harder truths about our lives, right? It, it's just, that's just what this is, right? We're acknowledging uh, that we don't live coherent lives, right? You know, I have a confession of who I think Jesus is. I affirm a love for Jesus. I believe that I'm adopted into his family. I'm a part of the, the, the family of God, the children of God. I'm a son of God. Um, but I don't live consistently with that reality, right? I, I just don't. And you don't either. And you have a moment where we confess that every single week when we gather for worship. But in Lent, it's this extended reflection on, wow, what does that gap look like in my life? And what would it look like for me to sort of remember, right, the truth of what God says nonetheless, right? Regardless of how I'm living, how might I be more connected? with the truthfulness about his love. So this week I came across a prayer that's been meaningful to me as I've thought about it over the last few days. And one line in particular I want to draw your attention to here at the beginning is this line, and it says this, I consent to your work of renovation and trust your vision for my becoming rather than my addiction to what I've been. So as we sort of come into this space of thinking and reflecting on this story out of Jesus' life, I want you just to think about those words in the context of your life. Do you consent to his work of renovation? And what would it look like for you to open up to what he wants you to be as opposed to all of the addictions to your past, whatever that may be? Lent is this season when we look at and we think about these things um, and this morning, we're in this very interesting story of Jesus' life um, as he nears the end of it, right? Uh, so this is the season, he's moving into the season of, uh, of, of the Passover, and unleavened, celebration of unleavened bread, right, we're told. And um, we're just days before his death uh, at this point. And um, it's a remarkable story that begins with this sort of emerging plot, right, to kill Jesus, right? That's what, where we begin. Uh, and then it's bookended by this other end, right, of Judas' Judas's decision to betray Jesus, right? So remember, you know, we've said all through Mark's gospel that Mark really loves, like, telling stories sandwich style, right? So there's, like, an event, 
and an event, and then we're sort of drawn into the middle part, right? The, the juicy, meaty part of the sandwich to think about. And that's true here, right? You've got two dark ends, right? Very sad parts of the story, rejection. In other words, we, if we want to frame it in the prayer I just read, a lack of consent. A lack of consent to the renovation that Jesus has brought to individuals and to the world. On the front and on the end part of our story. And in the very middle, we have this beautiful story of consent, right? This beautiful story of openness and the anointing uh, of Jesus. This is a story about rejection and reception. It's a story about consent and non-consent. And I want you to think back then to an earlier part of Mark's gospel where Jesus just says these very simple words that if you will receive it, in order to receive him rather, you must become like a little child, right? And remember at the moment we said that children are sort of marked out perhaps in that particular moment because children in Jesus' day, they lack status, right? They, 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 there wasn't any value. There wasn't like any value add in terms of work, right? They, they, they lack status. They lacked authority. They lacked a certain kind of agency. They, you know, that's just who children were. But there's another aspect of a child's life that maybe becomes really important to this part of the story, and that is that they lack inhibition. Right? Have, you, have you ever noticed that with little children? That they lack inhibition, that there can be an abandoned sense of freedom in a child's life, at least early on, until they grow up and get older like us little children, right? We, we, we're pretty inhibited people. Um, uh, so, so Jesus says we must become like children in order to enter the kingdom of God. So here let's think about these three movements in, the, in that regard, right? The plot, the anointing, and the betrayal. So the plot, right? The religious leaders... And the authorities, they have all along throughout the Gospels struggle with who Jesus was. And there are all kinds of reasons why they struggle with who Jesus is. I mean, for one, Jesus doesn't come up through their ranks, right? Jesus isn't a sort of a, a graduate of all the right rabbinic schools. That's not who he is. Uh, so he's not one of them in a certain regard, right? His educational pedigree isn't like, you're not going to look at Jesus' resume and think, oh, wow, I get to hire a pin grad. That's not what's going to happen with Jesus, right? Um, and, uh, and it's not just that. It's not just that he lacks, like, the institutional pedigree that might sort of promote him up, uh, but, but Jesus, it's just like when you hear Jesus teach Scripture, right, or talk about Scripture, what, is, what do the gospel writers say that he taught? Like, he, he taught as one who had authority. Let's think about that for just a moment, right? Jesus is God in person in our world. You know, that's who we believe him to be. And if that is the case, it means that Jesus has a unique connection to truthfulness, right? Not just telling the truth, but when it comes to the scripture, the story of God's dealing with human beings, his connection with humanity, and all that we associate that with, in this case, in Jesus' life with the Hebrew, right, the Jewish scriptures, right? Jesus is uniquely connected to that, to the scripture, right? So, of course, when he teaches the Bible, it's not like anyone else, right? It's just different, you know, like, I'm a pastor, and so I aspire to be a decent preacher, right? I aspire to, you know, teach a decent Sunday school class. I aspire to sort of know generally what the Bible is talking about and to be able to explain it in certain ways, but I am not Jesus. I'm not connected to what God who God is and what God wants and what God says in the same way that Jesus was. So, of course, he spoke as one with authority. And if you're someone like me, you know, you, you find people like Jesus off-putting. 
you know, because they displace your importance, your status, right? It's hard to become like a little child, isn't it? Really hard, especially if you're smart and you have status. And it's not just the way Jesus taught as one who had authority, right? That's pretty interesting, but it's, it's um, like Jesus' interactions with people are really problematic because you, you're in a culture, you're in a religious culture that, ha- that frankly, the scripture, right, that you've been reading has all these ritual purity laws, right? There's all these sort of laws that sort of talk about how you should live life and what it means to be faithful and what it looks like to be holy and so on and so forth. And so, but Jesus gets near all the wrong people, right? In other words, all the people that are on the other side of those laws, right? In other words, so, right, and it's described generally as sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, right? That's what is described of Jesus. And so here you are, you're a religious professional, and you're encountering Jesus who speaks like he's attached to the truth in this unique way, and, but he does these really unique things that bend the rules, right? In other words, he transgresses. I, I, I hate to use that word with Jesus, but we might as well because he, gets, he, he sort of bends these rules and he finds himself, right, in, in the company of all the wrong people. So you're a religious leader and you're like, I, I just don't know what to do with this dude. And that's the story of Jesus' life. And by the way, you know, Sabbath is a pretty big deal in Jewish society. And so, you know, guess what? Well, Jesus does a lot of this stuff on the Sabbath. It's hugely problematic for people. Well, of course it was. Jesus was a really hard person for people that had any kind of status inside of Israel to get along with. And it's reached this sort of culminating point when the religious leaders have decided it's time for him to go. Like, literally, time for him to go, he has to die. Now, that sounds extreme to us, but we don't live it. We did not live in that cultural moment, that cultural setting. We don't, sort of, we don't find ourselves attached to the Hebrew scriptures in the same way that they found themselves attached to the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, and there's just lots of differences between us and them, but they found themselves in a place where they're like, no, this guy's trouble. This guy's gonna derail everything. Why? Because we are addicted to our past. I know what I know. I hold on to what I know. I know what I know about God. And I'm not actually always open to learning new things about God. And that was the story of this particular moment. So in verses 1 and 2, they've concluded Jesus has to be arrested, tried, and killed. But Jesus is a popular individual for all of the same reasons, right, that they want to reject him. And they're afraid of the masses, right, because this is a pilgrimage moment, right? People are flooding into Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover, and they're afraid of the people and what they might do if they act on their plot in the wrong sort of way, so they lack opportunity. And that's the first slice of our sandwich, right? The plot to kill Jesus. Now, the second thing is this anointing space, right? And this really is the heart of the story. It's what Mark probably wants his audience to really focus on and be mesmerized by and be stunned by and surprised by. Uh, And it takes place, first of all, in the home of Simon the leper. Now, I want you to think about this. Simon the leper. Now, okay, we don't know much about this guy. We don't know if his leprosy is healed at this point or not healed, but it doesn't really matter. He is known in the community as Simon the leper. 
So I grew up with childhood asthma, and it's, unfortunately, I, I wasn't the lucky one. I'd ever grew out of it, so I still have asthma. So I'm Tuck the asthmatic. Who are you? Name your disease. Just think about it. What do you feel is true of your life? Maybe it is physically some ailment or disease or chronic problem that you suffer with. And when it sort of, sort of comes to the surface, you're keenly aware of it, and it, it's isolating, right? Leprosy was isolating. Kept you away from your community and people. Name your disease. Who are you? I am Tuck the... And maybe it's not a disease. Maybe what we really need to be thinking about this morning are the places of guilt and shame in our lives. The places of guilt and shame inside of our stories, right? Because, remember, we're in a season of Lent, and so we're probably thinking about those things a little bit more than we're thinking... Well, we are thinking about coronavirus, obviously, but, you know, we're thinking about, right, uh, we're thinking about these gaps in our lives between our renewal in the likeness of God and our actual expression of the likeness of God or the fact that we are children of God and yet I don't live like a child of God, right? So there's these gaps, right? So you think about the gap this morning. What is it that brings shame to you? What are you embarrassed by? What do you feel like maybe legitimate guilt and maybe not guilt but just chronic shame inside of your story this morning that, that if it was... If it was sort of like a scarlet letter, right, on your, that you had to wear and people could see it, right, Simon the leper, that you would just be horrified because it just, it just still feels icky to you. You feel like it's that thing in your story that isolates you from everyone else in the room if you were known and if it was known. Then you know something about what Mark is doing for us here. And it's so absolutely beautiful. Because why? Because what Mark is helping us to see is that our disease and our shame and our guilt, right, our moral imperfection, these things do not prevent our stories from hosting Jesus. Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. And that's what drives people crazy about Jesus because he just gets near people like us, right? He, he hangs out with all of the wrong people. Who are you and how does Jesus receive you? He's in the home of Simon the leper. How do you struggle to imagine a God who does not struggle with you? That's the gospel. That's the grace Jesus is a Messiah that receives us and who is received by us. And this is the context, this context of radical hospitality, right, on the part of Simon and on the part of Jesus that becomes the staging for this amazing story of anointing, right, okay, right, in which this woman who is not named in Mark's gospel, right, so she's, in some sense, she's invisible to us, right? We don't know much about her at all except that she's female, and that may be enough. And that she takes a vase, you know, a container that is filled with very, very expensive perfume, right, nard. And she breaks that container open over the head of Jesus. And all of its contents spill out over his head and she wipes Jesus with her hair. So what's going through your head right now? If you were in the home of Simon the leper, right? 
And this remarkable moment of anointing begins to happen. What's happening in your mind as you're thinking about this story? Like, there are things that are happening in your head. And some of them may be judgy things, right? Because you're more judgy than you want to acknowledge. And I'm more judgy than I want to acknowledge, right? So here it is. This is this amazing moment in which gender barriers are crossed, maybe even some intimacy, personal space barriers are crossed with regard to gender, right? Those are some of the things that are going through my head. This is an amazing moment of absolute, uninhibited devotion to Jesus. This woman is, as it's, it's, she does this act as if no one else is in the room. A number of years ago, when Tucker was still in college, Stacy and I visited his church down in Winston-Salem. We were there one Sunday evening, and we show up at the church, and, and they had this really remarkable tradition in their church community, in which at the very end of the service, uh, when they're singing the last song, all of the children, nursery workers might love this because it's an easy way to unload the children, right? But all of the children would come back into the worship space, and they would find themselves up onto the stage, like all of them. Like, they'd be up here, and they'd just dance, like little kids do. And you've seen that, right? You've seen some of our kids when they are watching, they're mesmerized by the musicians. You see that moment. It's one of my favorite moments at a worship service because they're just, they have no idea what's happening in the room. They're just like literally enjoying themselves watching the musicians, right? So in this church, right, that's what would happen, these kids. And what was really, really fascinating is like the littlest kids would just like go crazy up there on stage. And they're just, go, they're just having fun. They have no clue that there are adults in the room watching them. They're, or at least they're completely oblivious to the adults in the room watching them. But then as you get older, what happens? Someone's watching me dance, and you've seen that. So some kids, right, they have natural rhythm and they do a pretty good job with it. And other kids, it's like this super awkward. Why? Because we become so self-aware, so self-conscious, so aware that I'm being watched by someone. And maybe I won't dance the right way. My hand won't go up in the right way. I won't pull it down on the right beat. My, my foot, you know, well, you, you've been there. You've seen it. But if you can imagine those youngest kids in an uninhibited way delightfully celebrating a moment, then I think you understand something of the picture of what's happening in that room. This woman behaves in an uninhibited way. But what's really, really interesting is that people don't seem to get angry about the gender barriers, right? What they get angry about is the money. And that's what's surprising to me about this story, right? When I read it, I'm like, wow, they're angry about the money, right? They're angry about that this perfume, right? It was expensive. So it's described as what, you know, 30,000 denarii. So what, what is that in, in that era? It's something of the order of a, like a year's salary for an ordinary worker. All right, so right now, how much did you make last year? Think about it. You're doing your taxes, or at least you ought to be. You're about to, right? How much, how much income did you have last year? Think about it. This woman breaks it over the head of Jesus. See, in that culture, like the way you saved for a rainy day, the way you saved for a point of crisis, a really hard moment in life, is you, you stockpiled stuff, right? And so 
nard was an expensive perfume that she could maybe take a little bit out and sell it in the marketplace and have a little bit of income. It's like, it's like you taking your withdrawal out of your 401k in retirement, right? That's really kind of what's happening here. Only she takes it all and breaks it over the head of Jesus. And the people are angry. Now, why are they angry? So it's the Passover season, and there's a habit and a tradition of almsgiving. So it's, it's really interesting that you read some of these stories on the days that we read them in church, right? So we just announced, what, the, the Easter sacrificial offering, which is an offering that we're pretty proud of, right? So the people in Jesus' day, right, they're pretty proud of their almsgiving, these seasonal moments of almsgiving, right? People are angry at this woman that she's taken all that she had for her rainy day, all that she had for some future financial crisis, all that she had for retirement, whatever, and just breaks it over the head of Jesus. And then Jesus, you know, famously says, right, because it gets quoted a lot, is the poor you will always have with you, right? That, that sort of space, right? Um, but you won't always have me, Jesus says. She has done this in preparation for my burial. Now, his famous words are often distorted and taken out of context and used very poorly, I think. Jesus isn't arguing against the care of the poor, quite the opposite, actually, I think. Uh, but he's rather drawing specific attention to this woman's awareness of who Jesus is and where Jesus is going. Remember back at the story of the transfiguration when they're up on Jesus and the disciples, some of the disciples are on the mountain and the, the father's voice is heard and, it, and the, the voice ends and says, hey, this is my son, right, with him in place, listen to him. And then if, as you read through the rest of the gospel of Mark, like what is Jesus always talking about? His death, right? He, I'm, I'm going to die. The Son of Man will be betrayed. He'll be delivered up. He'll be suffer. He's going to die, and then he's going to rise. He's going to die, and then he's going to rise. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. And so what is interesting about this particular story is Jesus says she's heard. She's listening. She's clued in to who I am as Messiah. It's a really beautiful observation that he makes about who she is, really in contrast to everyone else. And maybe here Jesus offers a critique of their almsgiving. You can care for the poor whenever you wish. When do you wish? Do you just wish when it's almsgiving season? See, chronic and systemic poverty exists in our world because of the way we give. And Jesus knew that. He got that. Maybe he's critiquing them. Maybe he's pushing on them here just a little bit to see that almsgiving seasonally isn't going to solve the problems. Jesus says, this is about my burial. It's about your plot to kill me. And her story, by the way, will be heard and celebrated wherever the gospel is preached throughout the entire world. So there's this beautiful hint that even here in this moment of their anger, 
that what God is telling us is that his hospitality is opened up, not just to the people of Israel and not just to the people in that room that day, but to the entire world. And when the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is told, you're going to hear the story of this woman's abandoned love. She was a person who listened. She heard and she acted on what she heard. She enacted her love for Jesus. One more thing we need to think about in connection with this, I think. And I think it's important. Inside of Jesus' world, right? So he's Messiah. He's the true king of Israel. When a king would die, the person that did the anointing for burial was not a woman. And it was not any ordinary human being. They were prophets and priests. And so Jesus is connecting this woman's actions, I think, indirectly to those roles inside of God's people, of the prophetic role of being someone who's clued into the truth and who can speak truth, and the priestly role of someone that offers up an oblation, and she is offering all that she has to Jesus. Plot, anointing, and now third, and the final thing is that... Um, Mark closes the story with this little bitty story of Judas. It's the other end of the sandwich. We'll think more about his betrayal in a couple of weeks, but for now, it's probably just simply important to note that Judas was probably the, one of the persons that was angry. You know, maybe it's because of his role inside of the disciples. Maybe he's aware of the social inequalities of the world, and maybe he's like, you know, he, he's a little bit of an activist, and he certainly believed the Messiah would lead a revolution that would lead to the ouster of Rome, that would lead to the renovation of Israel, and so on and so forth. But here, what we're meant to understand is he's a disillusioned disciple, and he gives up on Jesus. He can't see how Jesus might be the one who actually reveals God because he's addicted to his own understanding of truth. He's addicted to what he already knows. He can't stick with Jesus. So the plot, the anointing, and the betrayal. Now let's finish up with a few couple of thoughts here. Mark uh, is telling us the story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. That's what these texts, these last texts are about. And whenever we read stories about Jesus' life in the Gospels, in some ways, in the same way you might read a children's book to a child, right, you sort of enter the story with them, and you get excited about parts of the story. Have you ever done that? Like, you know, you, know, you, you sort of, like for me, it was, you know, one of the Dr. Seuss, the, the dog party book, you know. Uh, I love that, reading it to my kids, you know. And, and you've got your own, the ones that you like, and, and you could probably even recite it by memory. But here, the point of when, whenever you hear a narrative, whenever you hear a story, like a real story, it's hard not to hear the parts of the story and identify with characters, right? It's just hard not to do that, right? And I think we're meant to do that with the Gospels, honestly. And so you read the story, and sometimes, so sometimes I read the story, and I think, okay, am I, am I like the religious leaders in the plot? Am I just, like, not happy with the Jesus that he is? And I just want a different Jesus, right? Am I, is that where I am? Am I like Simon the leper? Maybe it's a moment when I'm highly conscious. I feel guilty. I feel I'm aware of my shame, right? And, and so that, those are the things in the forefront of my mind. I'm thinking, oh, wow, Jesus, Jesus went into the home of Simon the leper. Jesus can be in my home. 
Or am I like this woman? That's the harder one, right? The abandoned love for Jesus, right? So where are you in the story when you, when you listen to the story? Where are you in the plot? Where are you in the audience? Where are you in the onlookers? Are you one of those that's like, you should have sold this and given the money to the poor? Do you have a critique of the woman? Where are you? Jesus says that to enter the kingdom, to receive the kingdom, to receive him, we have to become like little children. We have to let go of all of our status markers, all of the things that we lean into for our identity as if they could somehow prop us up enough and eternally and forever be enough. Become like a child. I'm not really good at that, becoming like a child. I'm not good at giving up status and giving power away. I'm just not. And I'm really, really, really not good at uninhibited love. I'm really not good at uninhibited love. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of, you know, if you know me, you're not going to like me. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to sort of just like do something. I'm going to look silly, right? You ever felt that way? You're just aware of what everybody's aware of, right? Or at least what you think everybody's aware of. So here's the thing. When, when it comes to this story, I don't think modern readers of the story in our context are going to be angry about the money. I don't, I don't think that's where your mind goes. I, don't, I, I just don't. I don't. It's not where my mind goes. I don't go there. I, I'm, like, I, I'm like, oh, okay, wow. That's, you know, I'm just astounded because I wouldn't empty my 401k for Jesus. I wouldn't love like that. I wouldn't. I don't. You don't either. Our love is bound up, tentative, we're hesitant. I think the most difficult thing about this particular story for modern readers is the vulnerability and the intimacy that is inside of this woman's story and her anointing of Jesus. They get very close. I would much rather talk about what it means to be a Christian and just talk about a Bible text. I mean, honestly, I, I, I'd much rather, it's a lot easier for me to say, well, I think, I think in, you know, Mark loves sandwiches when he tells, you know, wow, a sandwich in the Bible. You know, I, I would much rather, right, talk about, how the church has historically understood this. I would much rather sort of go all theological on you. I would much rather sort of even become philosophical with you because I understand, you know, culture. I've got a sociology degree. It's just so much easier to sort of box Christianity up into a set of ideas, a set of ideals that we understand and can talk about in very rational and careful ways than it is to encounter Jesus personally, vulnerably, intimately, being naked in his presence and unashamed seems so impossible. Do you receive him vulnerably? Do you receive him intimately? Would Jesus say of you or would he say of me, hey, let him alone because he's done what he could. 
Will you recognize the abandoned love for him? So sit with that in your heart and mind for a minute. So I've shared a number of times about this retreat that I participate in with men who are in various places of recovery. Um, and one of the things that if you're in the leadership side of that retreat is that uh, the, the leader, Michael Cusick, he, um, he invites the leaders to come out a day and a half early. And so you're there together and you're doing some study together and you're doing some reflection together. You're doing, you know, work together, honestly. You're thinking about how Jesus meets you in your story, right, as you prepare to hear the story of other people. Um, and so one of the things that Michael did with us this last time as we're out there, about a day and a half before the men arrived, is, um, is he just starts talking about Jesus' teaching that you must become like a child. And now, right, I've taught on that recently. I know that that means that you have no status. And Michael doesn't choose to go down that path. He chooses instead to say, you know, children live these abandoned lives of beauty. And we're all just sitting there, and we're thinking, yeah, they do. I've seen it. I've seen them live uninhibited in those uninhibited spaces, right? I've seen them in their carefree moments where they're just indifferent and unaware. And maybe that drives you crazy if you're a parent when they're indifferent and unaware, right? But they're indifferent and unaware for all the right reasons here, right, in this particular moment. And you're thinking about this. And so we go into this other room, and we sit in this room that's a square room, and there are chairs all along the perimeter. And there are 25 leaders, right? And so we're all in this room, and he passes out... um, those sleeping masks, the little blindfolds, right, sleeping masks, and every man gets a sleeping mask, and you're like, I don't know, where are you going with this, buddy? You know, where are we headed here? I'm not sure about the path you're taking us down, but he just urges us. He says, it's so important that you become like a child so that you receive the kingdom of God because you're about to lead these men in their becoming like children to receive the, the kingdom of God. Okay. So he hands out the mask. He says, I want you to take the mask out. And I want, in just a moment, I want you to put them on your eyes. And one of the things about men, is, and you all know this, ladies, right, is, is most of us, now with the exception of Alex, I get that, right, but with, with the exception of Alex, if you've ever seen him on the dance floor, we don't dance well, mostly, Okay, maybe Jonathan does. I don't know. But we'll ask Mary later. We, we're awkward beings as we get older. Why? Because I just always know that you're watching. So Michael says, look, men need to become uninhibited. Like You need to let go of all of your controls. You need to sort of let your guard down. You need to dance. So we're going to have a dance party. Now, that's 25 men, right? We're all like, uh-uh. We're not going to have a dance party. So he says, I want you to put the mask on. And so he put the mask on. He turns on the music. And the music is, old McDonald had a farm. You know, <laughs> like, you know, it's just this really weird moment, you know. And so here we are, you know, with an oink oink here and an oink oink there, you know, you know whatever. And, and we're just like, we're wearing these masks because nobody wants to be seen and nobody wants to see. <laughs> the music got a little bit better and we got a little more freed up and we're there dancing. And you just had to make a decision, right? You had to make a decision. Am I going to be in this moment 
in an uninhibited way, will I let go? Will I let go of all of my addictions to my past? And will I live in this, even if it's just a blindfolded moment of unabandoned fun, will I do that? It was a lovely moment. Thankfully, we couldn't see each other. You see, following Jesus into the lives of one another requires that we be children. That we live without our status. And we live with abandon to Jesus who has lived with abandon to us. We love because he first loved us. So let me come back to the prayer that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service. Listen to it as I read the entire thing to you as we close our service here or close our time. Silent love, source of life, prompt me into your possibilities and strengthen me through failures. I release all my thoughts and feelings of accusation, of guilt and shame, and receive the gift of freedom in your long-suffering love. I consent to your work of renovation and trust your vision for my becoming rather than my addiction to what I have been. May God give us the grace to know abandoned love with Jesus who has lived in an abandoned way towards you. Let's pray together. Father, help us because we struggle with these truths. We become familiar with stories and we just always think we know. So surprise us with your love this morning as we fellowship around your table and as we join the com- enjoy the company of one another and as we sing songs of praise. May we be like little children on the stage completely unaware of anyone that is present except you and you delight in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The offer-